All right. Let's go ahead and make your way back. Your way back to your seats. We're going to go ahead and get started. Enough relationship already. Come on. Just joking. All right. We're going to go ahead and get started here. Um, last week, we explored the kind of the difference between the world's perspective and God's perspective on two subjects, on our sexuality and on marriage. And during that conversation, actually turn with me to Genesis chapter 2 because we, we started our conversation then in Genesis 2 and I want to I explore a statement that I made last week. I want to go a little bit deeper into it because I just kind of threw it out there and I really want to dive into it a little deeper today. I made the statement that we live in a society of slaves that claim to be free. And what I want to do this morning is I want to explore the seeds of our slavery, the, the ways in which we find ourselves enslaved to sin and brokenness, and then also the ways that God really does kind of begin to lead us out of those things. And so we'll begin in Genesis chapter 2. And the very, very last verse, the last picture we get of God's creation is of the man and the woman, both naked vulnerable, not only between themselves, but between themselves and God, and yet they feel absolutely and utterly no shame. The end of Genesis chapter 2. But then we turn the page to Genesis 3, and we all know what happens. The serpent comes in, and the temptation happens. And Adam and Eve trade their intimacy with God for the forbidden fruit. We know what happens with sin coming in and kind of tanking the garden and tanking those relationships and tainting it. But what I really want to look at this morning to begin our conversation is how that happens. Because it doesn't just begin with the temptation. It's not like Satan just comes up and goes, ooh, look, fruit, don't you want some? He's way, way more predatory here. Notice how, I mean, he's just, the way he goes about doing this, chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you may not eat from any tree in the garden? Obviously, God didn't say you couldn't eat from any tree. He just said this one tree. And so the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you may not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you may not touch it or you will die. Now, he didn't actually say they couldn't touch it, but whatever. Game of telephone, obviously, you know, things get changed up in their minds. But notice how Satan responds here. You won't die. For, you know, he, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You're not going to die. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized, they realized that they were naked. Suddenly shame and, and vulnerability enters into the equation. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I find it so fascinating the way that the enemy takes them down. Because he doesn't just begin with the temptation, here, look, fruit, try it. Instead, what does he do? He targets their perception of God. Did God really say not to eat this? 
you're not going to die. He's holding out on you. He knows that this is something good he wants to keep for himself. He doesn't want you to be like him. And so Satan, or this serpent, calls into question God's goodness. Calls into question God's trustworthiness. Calls into question whether God really can be trusted to care about them and and that his provision and his direction is actually good. And the point that I want to make out, out of this this morning is that oftentimes our desire for things that are contrary to God's will for us, our temptation to sin, doesn't actually begin with external temptations or even necessarily with internal brokenness. It begins with our perception of God. Can we throw the, the downward spiral of sin slide up there? Okay, this is sin's downward spiral. It's basically we begin in our perception of God with doubting God's goodness. And when we begin to doubt God's goodness, we begin to turn to other created things which we feel like may be able to satiate that need that we feel inside. Other things which we believe, A, that we can control, right? Because God, well, I don't even know if he's there. I don't even know if he cares. I don't don't know if he's got my best interests in mind. So I'm going to turn to this thing because I know I can control it. And I know that it will give me what I want. So we turn to other created things. Some, we might call it, Um, you know, functional saviors. Things which we feel like can save us from what we fear the most. Being alone. Hurting. Not amounting to what we could amount to. So we turn to these functional saviors. The Bible has another term for it. It's idolatry. We turn to these idols believing that we can control them, believing that they can somehow meet the needs that we perceive ourselves to have. And when we turn away from God, who is our spiritual compass, our moral compass, and we turn to these created things, suddenly we can give ourselves over to our appetites. And that's when immorality begins to happen. That's the next turn on that screw into the the depths of our depravity. So we give ourselves over to our appetites. And when we do that, it's just a quick slide into slavery. Because we believe we can control our idols. We believe we can control our hungers our appetites. But the reality is, as we give ourselves more and more over to them, they begin to control us. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, do we have that one? Yeah. You are slaves to the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. We become slaves to whatever it is we obey. It also says this in Second Peter. You Whatever you obey is ultimately your master, is the point. And we are a society of people who are enslaved by our appetites. And yet we call ourselves free. The best picture I can give you of this kind of slavery to our appetites is a guy from the 14th century. His name was Duke Reynald III. He was a duke in what's today Belgium. And this guy's functional savior, his God, was his stomach. He loved to eat. He loved food. He was portly by, by then standards. He was morbidly obese, we would call him today. He was so big, in fact, that they had to begin tearing out walls and making doorways bigger for him to be able to fit through them. He had a little brother named Edward, and Edward didn't have a whole lot of respect for his big brother. And so at one point, Edward got a bunch of his friends together and they literally deposed his brother. They took, the th- they took his dukedom from him. 
and Edward took the title Duke. And normally in the medieval days, you would kill the person that you deposed so that you would never have to worry about watching your back. But Edward had such low esteem for his brother that he decided to do something different. Rather than kill Reynald, he imprisoned him in his very castle. He built a room for him right in the middle of the castle. And here's the crazy part about it. He sticks him in this room, and rather than putting locks on the door and bars on the windows, he just made the doors regular size, and he made the windows regular size. And he said, brother, the day you walk out of here by your own strength, I will give you your, your dukedom back. I will give you your title back. I will give you your lands back. I'll give it all back. Now, any normal person could have walked out in that heartbeat, but because Reynold was so portly, he could not fit through the door. We might go, well, that's a fair thing. He's encouraging his brother to lose weight, okay. But he also knew his brother's appetites. So every morning, he had the palace cooks make sumptuous banquets. And he would put them in this room, sitting there on tables, just steaming piles of food. Then he just stepped back and goes, all right, which do you want? Your kingdom, your dukedom, or the food? And for the first couple of days, Reynald withstood the temptation. He said, no, I'm not going to give in. But after about the third day of smelling this and looking at it, he started to gorge himself. And it wasn't long before he actually began to gain weight rather than lose weight. And according to the historians, Reynolds spent the next decade, 10 years of his life, imprisoned in that room that any normal-sized person could have walked out of in a heartbeat. Now, people looked at Edward, who came over and saw his brother in prison there, and he said, man, you are cruel. And Edward goes, no, I'm not cruel. He can leave any time he wants. But the reality is he couldn't. He was a prisoner of his own appetites. And I wonder how many of us today can identify with Reynold in some way. Maybe food isn't our functional savior. Maybe that's not the idol that we turn to, either to, to give us control or to kill the pain. Maybe for us it's alcohol or illicit drugs or shopping or pornography or the need to look the right way so it's exercise and the things that we wear and the things that we drive. Or maybe it's anger and unforgiveness. Whatever it is that we have given ourselves over to, whatever it is that we've said, yes, I will, I will run after you because you will give me satisfaction. I imagine there are quite a few of us this morning who can identify with Reynold and say, I am a prisoner of my own appetites. And I'm sick of it. And I want to be free. And we come to church and we hear messages about the fact that Jesus Christ saves us, that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty so that we don't have to be identified by our junk, that Jesus Christ offers us freedom, and we go, but I don't feel free. I don't feel forgiven. He may forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. And I just don't see an end to this downward spiral that I find myself on. There's a couple of different ways that we might approach gaining our freedom. Some of us think, well, the only way I'm ever going to be free is if I do it myself by my own effort. I have to be better. He says to be holy as he is holy. Well, I have to just grit my teeth and stop cold turkey and just be better person. And so you strive and you struggle to beat your body into submission. 
Other people will say, no, there's no way that we can make ourselves righteous in God's sight. There's no way we can transform ourselves. It's all on God. And so we just kind of stand back, kind of sitting in our junk, arms crossed, and say, okay, fix me. Heal me. Take it from me. The reality is that neither of those extremes is totally true. There's some truth in each one. But by themselves, they're both flawed perspectives. Because the reality is we have a part to play in our sanctification, or the process of being set apart from the brokenness of this world that we find ourselves in. We have a part to play. But we cannot completely change our hearts. We can't change our lives. We can't be transformed by our own efforts. We need help. We read this in Philippians chapter 2. Do we have that verse up there? If not, I'm... Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. It's in the outline as well, if you don't want to, but the Bible is a good place to go to. Analog version. For those of you who are searching it on your iPads or your phones right now, I I like the analog. Philippians, it goes, so it's it's the, the minor epistles, general electric power company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So, Philippians, page 1073, if you've got my Bible. Same joke, different day. Philippians, chapter 2, verse 12. Paul is writing to believers, and he says, My dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to strive towards the holy life that God calls us to, continue to struggle and strain against the brokenness and the, the, the tendency towards slavery that you feel yourself giving into. But notice he doesn't stop the sentence there. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose, because it's God ultimately in us through the Holy Spirit who begins to stir up even the desire to be free from the shackles that we find ourselves in. It's God who gives us the strength to begin to take those incremental steps out of slavery, out of bondage. We cannot do this by ourselves. And the point this morning is we have a part to play, but so does God. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look briefly at four different postures that God uses to lead us out of bondage, that God uses to bring us out of the things that we find ourselves getting ourselves over to. But before I get there, I have one last caveat. We often throw around words like discipleship and spiritual formation or spiritual maturity as the goal of our relationship with God. We want to become spiritually mature men and women, sons and daughters of God. And it's true. But we often don't spend a lot of time talking about how we actually become spiritually mature. And you might get from the way that we format our messages or maybe the books that you've read that there is some sort of like linear step, linear, you know, there are four easy steps to becoming spiritually mature. Here are six steps to becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the reality is, as we look at our own lives, we realize there's nothing linear about our lives. Yes, we have kind of seasons of our lives, but life is messy. 
And there are seasons of taking steps forward and there are taking, you know, seasons where we feel like we're just kind of plateaued and even seasons where we stumble and fall and we just are in the midst of this kind of growth process. Fits and starts. And the process of spiritual maturity is a lot like that. In, in a way, it's almost like the way that we learn and become proficient at a sport. There are no four easy steps to being a great basketball player or a great football player. We become proficient at a sport when we fall in love with it and we throw ourselves at it and we sacrifice time and energy to not only learn it physically, but to learn it mentally. And we sacrifice good things, the, the freedom to do anything we want with our summer in order to keep practicing at it. Because the things that we practice day in and day out ultimately are the things that we're going to do in the game. And there's not a single basketball player in the NBA, not a single football player in the NFL, not a single hockey player in the NHL, and there's no other real sports that matter. <laughs> Baseball is not a real sport. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just joking. It's a great way to get peanuts and, you know, anyway, I just, you know what, I should just walk off the stage now, I know. The angels are doing better. That's great. We're happy for them. But nobody becomes proficient and nobody excels at their sport by following four easy steps. It is a lifetime of learning it and devoting themselves to it. And there's seasons of, of like great rapid growth. And then there are seasons of feels like you plateau and even seasons where it feels like you're like losing a step or two. And then it, it just encourages you to regain that. And the same goes with spiritual maturity. I can, I can tell you right now that the people that you've met in your life who are spiritually mature, that you would just go, man, it feels like they are covered in the dust of Jesus Christ, like they follow so closely to him that if I'm just with them, it feels like I'm in the presence of God because they feel so intimately connected. There's not a single one of those people that followed four easy steps to spiritual maturity or to intimacy with God. Their life is a life marked by a steady and long obedience in the same direction. I can also tell you with absolute confidence that not a single one of them have done it perfectly. Every single person that you would consider spiritually mature has stumbled and fallen numerous times. But the difference is rather than getting up and just going, I give up, I obviously can't do this, and walking away, they get up and they fix their eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of their faith. And they lean into his grace and they follow him. And over a lifetime of following him, they are transformed. They become mature. And so this morning, what I'm about to go through are not four steps to spiritual maturity because steps are something that our minds process as things that I control, things that I am in charge of things that I do. Rather, I want to look at these things as postures. Because postures is kind of the way that we orient our hearts and say, God, I, I submit myself to you. And it's Him who does the work in us, even though we have a part to play in it. These are postures, not steps. Does that make sense? Very long lead into, let's go for it. Okay. Turn with me to Psalm 32. It's right in the middle of your Bible. David 
is described by Scripture as a man after God's own heart. He was, a man, he was the second king of Israel, but he was by far the most famous king of Israel. He was a man whom all the other kings kind of tried to be. He was a man who followed God, and yet he was also a man who was deeply aware of his brokenness. A man that not only had an adulterous affair with the wife of one of his closest friends, one of his mighty men, but when he accidentally got her pregnant, he tried to cover it up. And when that didn't work, he had his friend killed so that he could kind of sweep that under the rug and then take that woman into his, take Bathsheba into his home to be his wife. And he sat with the guilt and the shame of his secret sin for months, if not upwards of a year. And he lived with it. And he was a man who was familiar with it. The first posture I want to talk about this morning is one of confession. And I feel like David, more than anybody in Scripture, epitomizes the heart, the posture of of a humble person confessing. Let's read this in Psalm chapter 32. Again, this is a man who is familiar. Listen to the way he describes the way that that secret sin He ate away at him and weighed him down. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions or sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me, God. And my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. How many of us, and you don't need to raise your hand, but how many of us can identify with that? Knowing the weight of our guilt. Knowing the ways in which we have fallen short and just feeling empty. Feeling exhausted. Feeling like it's all, it's almost like it flavors every other part of life. Maybe it's getting audited by the IRS and it just completely changes the feel of everything else. You can't be present with your family. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's just the, rec- or, you know, the fear of, uh, perhaps of getting caught in something you know you're not supposed to. And it's just, it just flavors everything. It's almost like putting salt in your water. It just can't quench it no matter how much you drink. Verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. And I didn't cover up my iniquity. I just kind of laid it bare. I came to you raw and broken. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. You forgave the guilt of my sin. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Here's the thing. David tried to cover up his sin. But at one point, God decided, no, I'm not going to let you keep hiding. I'm not going to allow you to keep trying to be good enough or to keep putting on that mask. I'm going to call you out. Now, some of he he ends up sending this guy, Nathan. He's a prophet. And Nathan called David out on his sin. Basically just put him right in his face, said, listen, you are living with the wife of your friend whom you murdered. And we oftentimes think of getting caught as God's judgment, don't we? We think sometimes, I'm glad you don't, 
I love you, Sharon. We think of getting caught sometimes as God's judgment, right? Oh, he's, I'm in trouble now. You know, they, my wife saw the history on the computer or, or the IRS has figured it out or, or, you know, the intervention happens. And we look at that perhaps as God's judgment. I would say just the opposite. That's God, not God's judgment. That's God's grace. When he breaks us out of the pattern of trying to hide our sin and trying to stay in the shadows, that is God's grace. God's judgment is when he gives us over to those things. It's when he lets us have whatever it is that we've been jonesing for, right? Whatever it is that our appetites have said you need to have, and he says, fine. See if that functional Savior can save you. And he gives us over to it. We didn't look at it this morning. I was planning on doing it, but we kind of skipped it. That whole downward spiral of sin, we see that play out in Genesis 3, but it plays out even more powerfully in Romans chapter 1. If you want to look at that sometime this week, the, the verses are in your notes. But we see that at some point, because they refused to accept that God was their God, he gave them over to their sin. That is truly scary. That's God's judgment, is when he gives us over to our appetites. And so God, in his grace and his mercy, sends Nathan, this prophet, to call David on his junk. And David had two ways of responding. A, he could have, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, how dare you come in and talk to the king this way? But he responded the opposite way. He owned his junk. And he was willing to bring it out into the open. And I love the way this Psalm 51 was written in the throes of his purging the junk. Listen to the way that David describes what he's feeling here. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have Mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are right in your verdict and you are justified when you judge. And then he begins to talk about his natural brokenness that all of us have. Surely I was sinful at birth. Surely sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. So God, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. And then these verses that we know so well because we sing them. And they come from the depths of a broken heart who recognizes the depths of his sin. The depths of his bondage. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast or right spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. But restore to me the joy of your salvation. Let me experience joy again. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The thing I love about David is not that he was a perfect man. He was far from perfect. What I love about David is that he 
understood his relationship with God. He knew he could walk into his presence just as he was. I say this a lot. It's something I stole from one of Justin's teachers, John Coe. Prayer is not a time to be good. It's a time to be honest. Confession isn't a time to, yes, God, I recognize I've sinned again, so thank you for forgiving me and flit and float on. And you know, it's not a time to posture. It's a time to be honest and real. And what I love about David is he was utterly, completely real. He was completely himself. And he brought himself in the depths of his brokenness. So the first posture that we have this morning, the first posture that God uses to lead people out of bondage is one of confession. The second posture he uses is one of repentance. I mean, think of both John the Baptist and Jesus as they are starting to minister. Their message was this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And this term repent is a military term. It's a term used for when an army is walking one way, a phalanx of soldiers is going one way, and then they turn and they walk a different direction. They have just repented. They've turned. We use repentance in the church to talk about when we turn from one thing, maybe it's our functional saviors, our idols, the things that we go to for life, and we turn from them and we turn back to God and we fix our eyes on Him. The best picture I can give you of what repentance looks like is written by this woman, Portia Nelson. It's called an autobiography in five short chapters. They all fit on this one piece of paper. Don't worry, it's not going to be long. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. And it takes me forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. And it still takes me a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk, and I see that it's there. I still fall in, and it's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. And I get out immediately. Chapter 4, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5, I walk down another street. What does it look like to walk down another street? I mean, tangibly, we, we, we read that and it's like, yeah, okay, great. So repentance is walking down another street, but what does that actually look like? I have friends who have tasted alcohol and couldn't stop. It became their functional savior. And for a while, it was their captor. And today, they don't walk into a bar because to walk into a bar is to walk down the same street with a hole in it, a hole that they know far too well. They've also, in many of their cases, chosen to sever ties with some of their friends Because those friends either don't respect the choices that they've made or the influence that they have over them would cause them to possibly begin to flirt with those holes again. I have friends who their functional savior was money and shopping because it was just kind of the drug that could, you know, when we're unhappy, when we're frustrated, we just go buy something and it makes things better for the day. 
And for them, they've recognized that the allure of swiping the credit card, but then the subsequent bondage of debt was far too great. And so they have actually cut up their credit cards. That's the street that they've turned from. And they've gone to having their actual paper money in envelopes, and it's an envelope system that allows them to know how much they have budgeted for every single part of their life. I have a friend in this church who doesn't, not only doesn't have internet in his home, but has gotten rid of his computer altogether because he recognizes his tendency to abuse that. Now, the world might look at those people and say, you guys are in bondage. I mean, you guys, that's not freedom. And I would say just the opposite. No, that is freedom. Because they recognize their captors. They recognize the ways that the idols that they have looked to have ultimately become their captors. And so freedom is walking down a different street. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And these are individuals who have said, I'm done with that. And I'm walking down a different street. That's repentance. So confession, repentance. The third one is community. We are are being known by others. We were created to be in community with other people. I mean, the first thing that God identifies as not good in his good creation is what? That man was alone. We were created in our Father, in our God's image. God is three in one. He is a community in and of himself. We were created for community. There are over 50 one another statements in the New Testament. Love one another. Bear with one another. Be patient with one another. Pray for one another. Pray with one another. Serve one another. Look after one another's needs just as, you know, think just as highly of one another as you think of yourself. So many of them. The reminder is that we were created to do life in community. And so I ask you this. Who are you known by? And I'm not just talking about who knows your hopes and dreams, but who knows your junk? Who are those people in your life that you can call at 3 a.m. when your life is unraveling? Or do you just need to talk? Are you broken down on the side of the road? Who can you call? I've got a group of guys that I meet with every Tuesday morning and have had a group over the course of the last 15 years of my life. And I I can attribute a tremendous amount, not only of the freedom I've experienced, from many of the drugs that I find myself running to, the the functional saviors, but also a lot of my spiritual maturity on account of meeting with guys. Now, the the demographic, the makeup of that group has changed. It's different people that I'm meeting with today than I was 15 years ago, but the point is the same. I need to be known. And they don't know just the stuff that I like people to know about me. They know everything about me. They know the stuff that I like to try to hide in the shadow areas of my life. Because it's those areas that the enemy comes and attacks at. It's those areas where he comes in and goes, if anybody knew this, they'd call you a failure. They would be disgusted. They would reject you. They would run from you. Hide it. You're a hypocrite. And I can point to those guys that on Tuesday mornings and I say, they know me. They know everything about me. And they haven't rejected me. They love me as their brother. And there is freedom when we're known. We were not made to do life alone. 
our small groups. We have small groups that meet throughout the week. That is a place where lives begin to entwine, and that's where people begin to develop some of those really deep 3 a.m. relationships, the kind of people you can call at any time of the day. If you are not known, may I strongly encourage you to pray that God would bring those kind of people into your life. So, the first posture is confession. The second posture is repentance. The third posture is being known by others or community. And the fourth posture is intimacy. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. The last place we're going to turn is we're going to wrap this up. When I screw up, and it happens a lot, when I screw up, my tendency is to want to run and hide. Kind of like a dog that gets injured wants to go like run off into the woods and lick its wounds and be away from people until it fully heals and then it comes back into the... When I screw up, that's my tendency is to want to run and hide. Because I feel vulnerable. I feel ashamed. And I want to try to hide even from God. It's almost like I go, I know you're the divine physician, but honestly, I feel broken right now, so I'm going to go and mend myself, and then I'll come back into your presence when I'm like presentable again. Is that okay? And God's going, run to me. I mean, it's not, it's not like I don't know what you've done. It's not like I'm surprised by this. I know you. I know you better than you know yourself. And not only that, but as we're about to read in Hebrews chapter 4, I understand. I love this picture. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, describing Jesus, who is described as our high priest, the intermediary between ourselves and God, the one that represents us in heaven. He says this, Verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, yet he was without sin. We have a, we have a Savior in heaven who understands our humanity, understands the hungers of our flesh, understands what it is like living in a broken world. Verse 16, Therefore let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Rather than giving in to our desire to just run and hide, Scripture is replete with reminders that we need to run into the arms of our loving Father. He didn't accept us and call us Christians because we've done anything right. We are called Christ followers because he recognized we are incapable of fixing ourselves. And so he came in the form of a man and he took upon himself the penalty that was due us so that even though we are sinners, we can be called saints, saved sinners. The whole gospel boils down to these two things that we've looked at this morning. The first is we are all broken. We have all fallen short. And we cannot make ourselves whole again by our own strength. But God knew that. And so he took matters into his own hands. And we have a God in heaven who loves us deeper than we could understand. A God in heaven who is in the habit of binding up the broken healing the wounded, and setting captives free. Now, this does not give us carte blanche freedom to live any way that we want. 
It's kind of like I, I think of my boy Ethan. He will never cease to be my son, regardless of what he does. But that doesn't mean that I'm just going to turn a blind eye as he begins to make choices that either hurt him or hurt other people around him, which will then also affect his ability to have relationships with them. I want my son to be a strong representative of me. I want my son to be free, to be fully himself, but not free in the sense that he hurts himself or other people. And we have a loving father who loves us even deeper than we can fully understand, deeper than we can love our own kids. So the two truths are we are broken, but we have a savior who can make us whole again. We are captive, but we have a God who desires to lead us into freedom. And so this morning, as I'm going to invite Justin and Sal to come back up, and we're going to close in, in some response time. This morning, I imagine that there are some of us in here who identify deeply with Duke Reynold. We feel captivated, not in a good way. We feel like we are captives of our own appetites. We feel like we have been shackled by choices that we've made. We feel like we've fallen too far and we simply feel unredeemable. Or we feel like we have tried so many times that we're sick and tired of, of running on the hamster wheel, sick and tired of praying a prayer of God, please help me, and then nothing happens because we find ourselves saying it as we sit in the mire, covered up to our neck in the junk that we love to throw ourselves to. And this morning, I simply want to pray for any of us who feel like we are on that downward descent into sin. If you bow your heads with me. God, I am grateful that you love broken people. I'm grateful that you use broken vessels. Otherwise, I wouldn't be allowed to stand up here. I thank you that you are a God who sets captives free. I thank you that you are a, a God who binds up the broken and makes people whole again. You know. You know the functional saviors that we've turned to. You know the ways in which we have questioned your goodness, questioned your trustworthiness, questioned whether your parameters that you set really are useful in a, in a 21st century day and age. You know the ways that we have turned from you, turned to created things, given ourselves over to the hungers of our flesh, and found ourselves captivated or in captivity. And so I ask, Father, that you would lead us out. I ask that you would give us the courage to come to you just as we are, with the posture of David, just to be able to be humbly open and raw with you. I thank you that you're big enough to handle our full range of emotions and that we can just be honest. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to repent, to walk down another street. I pray that you would identify people in our lives that we can be known by, truly, fully known. People that we can call any time of the day and lean upon. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to find our identity in you, not in what we've done. 
and that you would give us, show us how to walk closer to you because we desperately need, more than anything else, intimacy with you. So we give you our lives. We pray that you would set us free. Jesus, in your holy name, amen.